2: The
3: voice of NASCAR. The voice of NASCAR.
4: The voice of NASCAR.
3: The voice of NASCAR. The voice of NASCAR. This is MRN Radio, the voice of NASCAR.
1: The Motor Racing Network presents an original podcast series. Fifty years,
5: the voice of NASCAR.
3: Earnhardt is using every inch of racetrack, and Elliot gets together with him. Earnhardt goes off in the grass.
5: Certainly, his style and his ability on the air, the way he painted a picture,
3: brings the car back onto the speedway and keeps it in a straight line
2: and holds onto the lead. Juan Pablo. Montoya's car has blown apart right with the jet blowers that were working to the high side of the banking. That was so weird because I was taking a little break. I had a little snack and I was drinking some water. All of a sudden I heard this boom.
5: Kurt Bush gets the win.
2: And we go to pit road to hear from the crew chief Tony Gibson. Tony screaming and hollering, and he grabs me by my shoulders with both hands and starts shaking me like I was on fire. Ten. That's
4: him screaming. He is a Daytona Beach native. (laughs) He's grabbing and hugging me.
1: Welcome back to MRN Presents 50 Years, the voice of NASCAR. I'm Fred Armstrong. In this episode, the 1970s unfold. And as the sport experiences massive growth, so too does Bill France Sr.'s fledgling radio network. With explosive expansion came golden opportunities for rank-and-file sportscasters working the short tracks, ballparks, and local arenas. For MRN co-founder and anchorman, Ken Squire, France's vision was the driving force behind it all. The goals
5: in racing radio at the time that the Motor Racing Network started were far different from what they are today. Today, it's like everything in America. It's based on sales, based on commercials, all that kind of thing. Big Bill, his sales were on the drivers that he put together that were rather unique. Nobody would have believed that, but it was true. I mean, you think about some of those great people like Fireball Roberts, who didn't particularly light up as a uh, a speaker, but he was so sincere in what he said. Jarrett was another from the outset. He got what radio was. I'm sure that in his family they listened to the Sunday preachers and he knew what radio could do and turn people on turn people off and Bill he knew it cold he absolutely totally understood the consequence and importance of radio Uh, it was instantaneous it was there and we in radio, (laughs) in those days, were outsiders because baseball ruled, but uh, not for Bill. He understood that there was an audience here, and no one, I mean, think about television and how long it took them to catch on, uh, really got it, and he played it to the hilt, and that was of such importance because he wanted to build heroes. He wanted to build... Uh, an entire sport and the son of a gun did it and uh, and took great pleasure in the fact that we'd clear three or four hundred radio stations and he didn't care particularly if we cleared the big towns and the cities or the small communities because he knew that the core of this thing was still folks from small towns and the fact that that was so dedicated to those kind of people was one of the major thrusts that drove this sport forward. Former NASCAR
1: president Mike Helton.
6: There was some coverage of the sport through Universal Racing Network, um, but there wasn't a completeness of coverage, and I think what the France family and their vision was to tie all the events together. And in, in in that moment in the 60s and the 70s, Uh, Before there was the ability or the opportunity to be on TV as much, there was a need in their minds, and correctly so, to, to be able to let the NASCAR fans follow the live event. And the best opportunity and the best way to do that at that moment was have a solid, organized radio broadcast because people survived greatly on radio in that era for news and entertainment. Uh, and and other sports were using it um, you you would you would become attached to your local radio stations because of their coverage of local sports and it was only natural that on Saturday night or Sunday afternoon mainly that you you were attached to your radio to follow NASCAR and I think that's what the France family went out to, to put together
1: For Big Bill talent and authenticity were key and he found both when he recruited a short track announcer from Elkin, North Carolina, named Barney Hall.
5: One of the finest racing commentators in the South from WIFM Elkin, North Carolina on Pitt Road,
3: Barney Hall. Thank you, Ken. As we look down toward the east end of the speedway, all we can see, of course, is pit crews and t- I had been doing some public address announcing at a couple of different tracks, and I was working at Bristol, Tennessee, the Bristol Motor Speedway up there. And Big Bill France was in attendance that day, and uh, he heard me doing PA, and he came over in, in the booth and uh, introduced himself, which he, he didn't need an introduction, but he said, boy, I, I like the way you talk. He said, you talk real, real good. He said, have you ever thought about uh, working... The Daytona 500 Network. I didn't even know they had a Daytona 500 Network at that particular time (laughs) because green wasn't the word for me, man. I I didn't know a whole lot about the business. But anyway, he said they're going to have an audition in Daytona on Monday, and they've invited uh, several announcers around the country to come down and audition for a spot that will be open. He said, I'd like for you to come down there and do that. Can you do it? And uh, I was almost uh, embarrassed to tell him that I I didn't have the money to come to Daytona and, and miss my regular job. But I finally told him that, and he said, well, just come down there anyway. And he said, what I'm going to do, I'm going to give you a $100 bill. And he said, you come to Daytona, and you do the qualifying races, the Saturday races, and the Sunday races. And he said, if we like what you do, uh, you keep the $100 bill. We'll work out some kind of a deal to do all the races. And I said, well, I appreciate it. And as it turned out, everything that happened the first 50 laps in that Daytona 500 happened up in turns three and four. Two or three cars hit the wall. One car went upside down, landed on top of another. And I forgot to be kind of mic-scared at that point because everything was going on, and I just uh, wanted to make sure I didn't miss any of it. Apparently, Big Bill liked what he heard, and uh, he called me a little bit later. Bob Montgomery was their regular announcer at that time, and uh, Big Bill come, said, come down to the day, him, boy, oh, you got a job. So, that's sort of how I jumped into it. Former MRN President David
1: Hyatt recalls the strength of Barney's influence, helping NASCAR reach a broader audience.
2: Uh, he was one of Big Bill's confidants because Barney was also a good friend with some others who were in the sport at that time. Junior Johnson kind of brought Barney into the sport. They grew up and lived in virtually the same part of the country, in western North Carolina, up in the hills. And Junior uh, got Barney kind of interested in racing. Uh, Barney had been around it a little bit, but Junior really brought him to the table. So Junior and Big Bill and all those folks were the ones who were getting NASCAR off the ground. And Barney had a voice. Barney was already on a radio station, and he was willing to go do the coverage. He would go out from the little radio station he worked at in Elkin, North Carolina, WIFM. And he would go out, travel, and he would do some races and do race coverage, and he would come back, and he would take all the stuff that they sent him, uh, NASCAR and, and Daytona and any racetracks PR department, and he'd make content out of it for his radio show. And I think they had a great respect for that because they saw that he believed in the sport and that it had a future
0: the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.
1: With expansion came the typical challenges for founding network president Roger Baer. Travel expenses and
7: talent acquisition were among the most challenging. It got to be somewhat routine, but travel was a huge challenge. Being able to get qualified announcers to work you go back and listen to the broadcast there were some constants but there were ken was the constant ken and marvin pants were the constant and then later barney but there were a raft of other announcers that rotated through some really fine broadcasters rotated through the the company just because it was hard hard to get people to give that much time of their lives away to for not much money i mean, honestly we I think the pay scale was maybe $100 or $125. We paid him for the weekend. I hope I, it's all right to tell what we paid Ken, but paid Ken four or $500 for a weekend to be the anchor of, you know, MRN Radio. So it, it, we certainly didn't do it for the money. So it was hard to get people to give that up, and we would pay their expenses. But I was pretty. Uh, I worked for Annie B. France, and she. Kept her books with a pencil and a and, and a, you know and a ledger. You didn't spend money.
1: MRN's financial outlook improved in 1972 as automotive aftermarket giant STP made a major commitment to NASCAR. For Bear, the deal
7: was a welcome development. We would advertise the races because I, we didn't have a national advertiser. And Lynn Kukler, who was with NASCAR, had a friend who had a, a company that was, I think, it was Clear Away. Windshield cleaner, and they bought for five hundred dollars a minute, two or three minutes of advertising in our broadcasts. And had they had any distribution, it turns out they might have might have been more successful than they were. I think they were lacking distribution. And then an interesting thing happened: STP and Andy Granatelli NASCAR, NASCAR had a rule that you could not have additives because they had a relationship with Pure Oil Company, which, which became owned by UNICAL, Union Oil Company, Union seventy six. And the, Pure Oil didn't want to they wanted to be able to advertise that their oil was the official oil of NASCAR and the only oil used in NASCAR. So they so they had a Pure Oil had a, a requested a rule of NASCAR that there be no additives. Well, the fact of the matter is that there were additives being used in the sport, but they would put, pour them into a pure oil can and then <laughs> empty the bin. And, and so it was kind of under-the-radar additives. But Andy Granatelli wanted to come into NASCAR. And he came and met with Bill France. And Bill said, okay, you can come into NASCAR. And we will change that rule. But you've got to have a car. You can't just come into NASCAR. And so the deal was struck with Richard Petty. And Bill also said, and I need you to advertise on Motor Racing Network.
5: When Petty goes racing, Petty goes to win. This year, he has something new to help. He and teammate Buddy Baker run Andy Granatelli's new
7: STP, double oil filter. And so they bought seven units on Motor Racing Network, and they were our national advertiser. STP. The racer's edge. It was the racer's edge, and I'm, I'm going to tell you, it put MRN on the positive side of the ledger, and I didn't hear so much from Annie B. Uh,
1: after that. As MRN continued to grow, more tracks wanted their events to feature coverage from NASCAR's national broadcast crew. As Bear recalls, one of the first requests came from across the continent, Riverside International Raceway in Southern California.
5: A hello from Riverside, California, for the 10th Annual Winston Western 500 Grand National NASCAR Stock Car Automobile Race. Well,
7: we started, the first one was Riverside, and Les Richter was, was a really good friend of the France family. When Les had the local radio station in Riverside was doing the broadcasts, and Les called bill and said hey i'd like to see if you guys could do our broadcast so that was the first opportunity we had to do a a racetrack other than the the tracks we owned and so i thought well that's that's good and i talked to les and we established a a relationship and we did a contract to do their two races and then they had a permatex race the day before uh, late month west coast late models so we did their summer and their january race interestingly enough the track was actually owned by a group that was headed by a guy named fritz duda and fritz had done broadcast for some reason they needed a turn announcer in turn six at riverside and so when i when they were talking about it i heard this guy doing a broadcast and he he I thought he did a really great job. So I called Les, said, you know, we don't want to drag all of our guys out there. You've got a really good broadcaster that I heard a guy named Fritz Duda did turn six. I said, any chances of getting him? He laughed. He said, oh, yeah, I think I can make the arrangement. So I got Fritz, not knowing he was an owner of the track. He and Dick Clark and um, some others, I I can't remember, but actually owned Riverside. So I get Fritz. Fritz says, oh, yeah, I'd be happy to do it. And then we established a great personal relationship once. And then I found out what his real relationship was to the facility.
5: With us from California, a gentleman who's been with us on several broadcasts of recent and an old veteran of Riverside, Fritz Duda, turn six.
8: We're high in the grandstand here, Ken, above turn six as they come out of the S's into our view from Barney Hall and the Goodyear Tower. So I'll go down a short little straightaway. But it
7: was funny. We had the owner of the track doing a broadcast. He did a great job at Riverside. Anyway, so we, we did the Riverside broadcast. And then uh, other tracks just started calling and saying, hey, if you can do that, could you, could you do our broadcast? Clay Earls called. That was a significant call from Martinsville because that was going to hurt Universal Racing Network. And we didn't want to do that. Uh, we had great respect for Hank and his staff and his broadcasts, and that was a painful selection. You know, the France family owned were co-owners of Martinsville, and um, Clay was Clay Clay saw kind of saw that that we had a lot more stations uh, than um, than he was getting through Universal, and he wanted the national coverage. So Clay came to me and we talked and agreed to do the broadcast but i did talk to jim and jim and hank schoolfield's relationship were were, it was very close and jim called hank to talk to him and tell him what was going on and i think got hank's blessing before we, we took over that track but then we ended up with wilkesboro and and atlanta and charlotte we had charlotte um i had a contract at Charlotte that was an evergreen contact that every, every year renewed for for the next year on a 10-year rollover. Um, interestingly, when, when Bruton Smith wanted to start his own network, Bill France Jr. let him out of that 10-year rolling contract. Kind of irritated me a little bit because <laughs> I had done such a sweetheart deal. But uh, uh, that was the start then of PRN. There are some things that are too good to
9: keep a secret.
0: Just go to Indeed.com slash match right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash match. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
1: With Ken Squire and Barney Hall on the roster, the quality and authenticity bar had been set, and only the best of the best would do for Roger Bear and MRN. Like New Britain, Connecticut sportscaster Jack Aroot.
5: Barney, there seems to be a lot more emphasis upon this race, and I
7: think probably it's the... I got a call from might have been Bill France, because uh, because Jack had uh, Jack's father owned uh, Stafford Springs Speedway, and and Jack wanted to be a broadcaster, and I think he was still at the University of Vermont in school, although he may have just gotten out, and he had done public address announcing at Stafford Springs, and somehow got through to bill jr either through his father or maybe himself and bill called me and said hey there's there's this kid that i want you to find something to do and so i called jackie and i said you know we we could probably use you if can you get to martinsville yeah i can get to martinsville he said so okay well you come on down to martinsville because we we like to Get somebody to take the lunches out to our turn announcers, and you know, just kind of be a gopher on that weekend, and like like you to come do that. Oh, I'll be there. So he came down to Martinsville, and 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 was our kind of on track guy. Helped set the equipment up prior to the race, and took the guys out on a golf cart or or whatever transportation we had to their turns and to the pits, and set all that up and. And uh, later I found out that uh, Jack didn't have a hotel room. And I said, well, where did you stay? Oh, he said, I stayed in the Hotel Torino. And that was his Ford Torino he slept in in the parking lot at Martinsville Speedway to work for his first weekend at, at, at Martinsville. And I think we paid him $25, but I'm not positive.
1: With a blossoming TV career underway motorcycle aficionado Dave Despain found his way onto the MRN Airways.
5: And covering the action there today is
8: Dave Despain. The East Bank of Daytona, 31 degrees steep, four racing lanes wide. I had worked
9: in the, in the local radio station, tiny radio station, 250-watt daytimer timer, uh, in Fairfield, Iowa, my hometown. And and one of the things we did was sports. So I learned to do play-by-play doing high school sports on this little teeny radio station, and race motorcycles and was in the club and we built a track and all the stuff that you do,
7: um,
9: decided I needed a real job, went to work for the sanctioning body, the American Motorcyclist Association. First assignment was to go to Daytona uh, for the 500, because under, under the guise that I would be learning the ropes and meet all the people. Uh, and be up to speed when I went back six weeks later for bike week, which was in '72, I think. And in reality, the reason I went was I was an excuse for my boss, who was an old car guy. I remember the KNK um, Dodge? Um, this was going back before you sure. guys were born, but it's a pretty famous car. Uh, Harry Hyde built it, yep. and, uh, you know, anyway, it. Um, K&K, and my boss had worked for K&K Insurance, he was an insurance salesman, and then he got this job running the AMA, well he wanted to go to Daytona to see all these old car buddies. And I was his excuse, why, well, yeah, I'm taking the new kid down there, we're going to break him in, get him all up to speed. So when I got down there, among the people I met was somebody from Motor Racing Network, and I mentioned to them, oh yeah, I worked in radio for a long time, and, and uh, they said, oh, wow. Why don't you, since you're a motorcycle guy, why don't you go to, I think it was St. Petersburg, on the day of the 500, because there's a national motocross race there, and you call in some reports, and we'll use them during the 500 to promote the MRN broadcast of the 200, the motorcycle race, in whatever it was, three or four weeks. This was back, I don't think MRN does the 200 anymore, I don't think they've done it for quite a while, but anyway, back then they did. So I did that, and everybody was happy, and in the course of that, I met Ken Squire and Mike Joy, or maybe it was Jackie Aroot back then, I don't remember who was who, and they said, you did good, you want to be a corner announcer for MRN? I said, sure. So it wasn't that year, but it must have been probably the following. I don't remember what my first MRN broadcast was, but something in the back of my mind tells me it was actually the 500. Um, and so then I just, you know, my whole career has just been, you know, bullshit and dumb luck, and that was a pretty good example. I just lucked into, uh, you know, lucked into that deal. For Despain, the new gig came with a few lessons,
1: including one delivered by the veteran Ken Squire.
9: When I met... Squire, well, I think for the first time, he was in the booth, and this was probably Saturday afternoon, maybe, of a cup weekend. And I guess it would have been that Daytona 500 weekend. I hadn't left for my St. Petersburg assignment yet. Anyway, uh, he had a legal pad in his lap and he, we were carrying on this conversation and every once in a while in the middle of it he'd stop and write something down and I finally asked him if he was taking notes about my, you know, performance and he laughed and he handed it to me and the, it was a, you know a big size legal pad however big they are in little tiny print were all of these phrases to describe stock car racing um, you know, just what do you call them, similes and metaphors and all this other stuff, I don't remember any of them right now, but painting word pictures to enable people to to, to visualize what he was seeing as the race unfolded, and I thought, that's pretty impressive, and he took it back and kind of grinned and said do your homework <laughs> and i never forgot that i think that's probably the most i'm I'm not sure i was all that talented kind of like a lot of racers you know that 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 excel beyond their natural ability because they work hard at it i like to think that maybe that was a little bit of my situation and the aforementioned you know luck and and uh bs but uh Yeah, do your homework.
1: (laughs) As the decade rolled on, MRN continued to attract top talent, some transitioning from other sports to join the growing phenomenon of NASCAR racing, like stick and ball radio reporter Eli Gold from Brooklyn, New York, who auditioned at the 1976 World 600 and ultimately became one of MRN's longest-running anchormen.
8: ...groove right in front of Eli Gold. To turn number three, David Pearson way down low. He dumps right in front of Darrell Walsh. It's Pearson and Walsh.
7: Eli was a hockey announcer on Long Island. He did hockey games, and he had never done an auto race. I'm not sure he'd ever seen an auto race live, but I can't speak to that. You'd have to ask Eli. But he got his tape recorder and watched an auto race, and called the auto race and sent his tape down to Daytona. And it was so exciting. They hired him without ever, you know, even meeting. I think they hired him over the phone. He just, look where he's gone. And he's just, he was just a great, great talent and a vocabulary that was unequaled. And and he could relate so easily to this sport. I don't know what it is about hockey and and auto racing, but you know their fans are are pretty co- have a commonality. In 1977, the
1: network wooed two-time Cup Series champion Ned Jarrett to join the team, patrolling pit road
5: with us for the first time for the Daytona 500. Former two-time national champion Ned Jarrett in the pits. Ned, what's the
10: story? Ken, they're working in the area of the oil filter on the Petty Dodge. I don't know if that is. The I had been working for the Universal Racing Network, which was uh, the first good-sized network that was in existence back then, but then when MRN was formed, uh, they asked me to come on with them. I knew that the future was much brighter there because they uh, had great plans of expanding, and, and uh, I figured eventually that they'd be doing the majority of the races, and that was a, a good thing as far as I was concerned, and I just liked the fact that it was so closely associated with NASCAR. And uh, so it, it, was a, uh, it was a great experience right from the beginning to be on the ground floor of MRN and to work with such guys as Ken Squire and Barney Hall uh, that were some of the originators. And so that was, it was just a, a great experience.
1: As the flow of top talent continued, the MRN sound began to coalesce taking another positive turn when Stafford Motor Speedway announcer Mike Joy positioned himself behind an MRN microphone.
8: And they are three, four, and even five wide coming down the front straightaway into turn number one, Darrell Waltrip on the inside. I was doing public address at a number of New England short tracks, and occasionally I would share the microphone with Ken Squire when they would bring Ken in for the big events. So it was Ken uh, who first brought me into MRN as a, a turn announcer, and jack root and i would joke that we would go deficit announcing on weekends you know mrn would provide a hotel room a plane ticket and a small fee otherwise we were on our own for expenses so uh, jackie and i seems we'd always go home with less money than we left town with but that was okay because we were developing our skills and a great education in this business so jack came down to daytona full-time and when an opportunity opened brought me down there to work with him and help build the radio network and and it into television and we just we had a great time doing it it was was never work we worked hard but it was never like work and, and gosh we had a lot of fun doing it and when Jack left the network in January of 1980 uh, Jim Foster moved me into the exec producer position so I was uh, producer co-anchor with Barney Hall uh, chief salesman and, I guess, cook and bottle washer, along with Harry Howard, as we only had about four full-time employees, if you can imagine that. But we just loved what we were doing, and, and we really, really had a blast getting to do it.
1: Fans weren't the only beneficiaries as MRN grew in scope and scale. Third-generation NASCAR driver Kyle Petty
4: remembers his family tuning in on race day. Early 70s, especially early 70s. More in the latter 70s. I do remember MRN a lot because I started racing in 79. And we would fall out of races sometimes and you'd ride home so you'd listen to the race on the radio because you'd be driving home. But both of my grandfathers, my grandfather Petty uh, and my grandfather Owens, religiously listened to MRN whenever it started. Um, That was a godsend for those two. Um, My grandfather Petty obviously Uh, went to numerous races. My grandfather Owens only went to some local races every now and then. He was my mother's father. Um, But I remember he would sit in the chair, uh, and even later, even later, I remember the 80s and 90s when my grandfather Owens would sit in the chair with the TV on and the sound turned down listening to MRN. That's the only way he would listen, he would watch and listen to a race. Uh, But those are my memories of MRN more than anything else. Obviously, Barney Hall, Ken Squire. Uh, those early guys that were, were there. from, Arnie was there forever, but um, just more so uh, my, grandpa- my grandfather's listening to it. The 1970s were a time of
1: tremendous growth for NASCAR and the motor racing network. But the subtle story lies in the methodical assembly of a loose group of sportscasters into a cohesive team with a new exciting sound that would captivate fans for decades to come. Join us for the next episode of MRN Presents 50 Years, the Voice of NASCAR. Until then, I'm Fred Armstrong. Thanks for listening.
5: Richard Petty goes back in front. They both spin. They're in the wall. Petty is sliding, slamming into the wall. He's coming down toward the finish line. Will he make it? He's still moving. The car stops. 300, 400 feet shy of the finish line.
1: This program was a presentation of the Motor Racing Network with studios in Concord, North Carolina and Daytona Beach, Florida.
8: And now it appears we may have a fist fight. We see drivers and helmets, safety officials trying to jump in there and separate them as tempers have really flared after this amazing incident on the final lap coming into turn number three.
1: MRN Presents 50 Years the Voice of NASCAR was written and produced by Rich Culver. Dale
5: Earnhardt comes to the white flag and the caution flag, and Dale Earnhardt is going to win the Daytona 500 in his 20th try.
1: Any use of the accounts or descriptions contained in this broadcast must be with the express written permission of NASCAR and the Motor Racing Network.